the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. The Common Good, the show hopefully designed to create space, which means sometimes we'll disagree, sometimes we won't have easy conclusions, which, I, you know, personally, I think that's where we live most of our lives, at least for me. That's yep. certainly true. And, uh, man, we've loved hearing from you, hearing your stories. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are podcasted, and now... We have a text line, so if you want to text us questions or thoughts, ideas, anecdotes, puns, any of that stuff, you can text us at 68683. Uh, That's 68683, and then in the message, first type the letter CG for common good, and then whatever question you have in mind, and we would love to interact with you there. I love that you, it fits your personality, you always add puns. Like, you you send us... (laughs) I can't help it. I'm always like, please send me words of affirmation, and you're like, send us puns. (laughs) I just need need more more jokes for my arsenal. (laughs) I'm like, just say nice things about me, and you're like, just send us puns. Which really it th- fits if, our personality. If that was a sixth love language, if puns was a love language, <laughs> I, that's the category I would fall in for better or for worse. Oh, that's awesome. All right, so you came across a story about uh, about the voting age that I think is going to be a fascinating conversation. Why don't you uh, it th- fill is, us it, in there? It was uh, I saw it on the Today Show. I was watching the other day, and Nancy Pelosi, so Speaker of the House, we all know Nancy Pelosi. Uh, some people love her, some people hate her, uh, <laughs> but she came out and she interestingly said that she is for. Uh, changing the voting age to 16 right. uh, to drive a higher level of voter awareness and turnout. So I think we've got that audio, and then let's talk about it. Go Absolutely. ahead with the audio. I myself, personally, I'm not speaking for my caucus, I myself have always been for lowering the, vote, the voting age to 16. I think it's really important to capture kids when they're in high school, when they're interested in all of this, when they're learning about government to be able to vote. That is... That is not necessary. You know, in other words, some of the priorities in this bill are about uh, transparency and openness and accessibility and the rest. Uh, that's a subject of debate. But my view is that uh, I would welcome that. Wow. OK, so, so that's interesting. Think, so she's saying she wants to see and she's very clear. Right. She goes, this is my opinion, not not the whole Democratic Party or whatever. Right. right. Uh, but she said, I would like to see the voting age go down to 16 and. uh a, it made for some funny memes, right? Like, here's what 16-year-olds do. <laughs> but I'm just interested in your thoughts. You and I are, we've been 16, but you and I were both youth pastors. That's how we started our ministry. So That's we right. spent a lot of time building into high schoolers. Um, I have a 15-year-old at home right now. Oh, just right, wondering, right. wondering your thoughts uh, when you hear that. 16 years old can vote. Okay, first thoughts, I'm so glad 
that it wasn't 16 when I was 16. Ah, there you go. Because I could barely tie my shoes at 16. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I should be voting. But I will say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surprise, I think, even myself here because... 16 feels crazy young. Yep. And um, now having, like, if I ever speak at a college or something, I'm always like, oh, my gosh, you're a, you're a baby. And you're like, no, these are, yep. these are adults. And, I, and I'm reminded of why I love student ministry so much for a number of reasons, but not the least of which was there was, they hadn't had their idealism beaten out of them yet. Yep. And it, it is sometimes frustrating, even, you know, now in my mid-30s, to, to realize how much of that fervor sometimes has been dulled a little bit. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's wisdom. Sometimes, yeah, 20-year-old Ian was was maybe too fired up about everything all the time. But I do think that there is a really uh, beautiful mobility to uh, young adults, to teenagers in particular, because especially Christ followers, if I could just speak mm-hmm. specifically to that, yep. they they seem to wholeheartedly believe that Jesus actually came to do some stuff, mm. not just to be a subject of conversation. Yeah, and there, there for me, some of that is that can be really exciting. Now, I also understand the flip of that is most sixteen-year-olds, and that's not all. I know plenty of sixteen-year-olds that understand the political process way better than I do. Uh, but most, I feel like, maybe are um, not as informed as maybe a thirty-year-old would be, right. with regards to the complexities and intricacies of what policies are actually saying or doing. So, I guess I'm kind of answering out of both sides of my mouth right now. Yep. Not, I don't know. I don't know where you land on this. So I think uh, I'm going to answer out of both sides of my mouth as well. <laughs> Outstanding. I think it's a bad idea. So across the board, I don't think we should lower the voting age. Okay. And I just don't think, are there really civically minded kids, you know, 16 year olds who know a lot of stuff? Yes. But I think by and large, and like I said, I have a 15 year old. I kind of can see this with her and her friends. Like, they just know their world, right? Like, there's still more learning to go on. Like, I don't want them learning about government and at the same time voting. But that's what at we're the doing, same though. Time, we're doing that, too. So I'm about to acknowledge at Here the same go. time, there are a lot of adults out there who also aren't engaged and probably have no right, not no right, Uh-oh. no business voting. <laughs> oh, boy. Have the right, but no business. And so... I think by and large, I don't think, I guess I would put it this way. I don't think that we need to lower the voting age. Yet at the same time, I want to uh, say that I think she makes a good point that we need to build on the momentum of a 16-year-olds and what they're learning and their optimism. I think you can build on that momentum without actually giving them the right to vote. There could still be a time of learning. You're still a kid at 16. You're still learning. Um, You know, I don't think they need it all at that age. And so I do think... um, Continuing to teach, continuing to learn, building that optimism, and then hey, when you're 18, you remember? Did you remember the first time you ever voted when you're 18? Yeah, and oh yeah, going in that was that was a big deal. It was, but based on that premise though of still learning, yep. I mean, there's some pretty well documented research that would claim the at least the male brain isn't done developing until 25. That's <laughs> part of the rationale behind uh, car rental ages. So, so why is voting? Is it really? It is. Yeah. Why? Why is voting? seen as so much less impactful, which I don't think is a word, but so yeah. much less significant than, you know, the uh, possible risks of renting a car. Again, still speaking out of both sides of my mouth, but I do feel like so much of the policy that um, is voted and decided upon affects 16, 17, 8-year-olds, especially as they're heading into college and or the workforce. True. To give them a voice actually could be, I don't know, that that could be really smart. Like you mentioned, oh, my teenager, they, they just sort of know, know their world. It, it is there is there a conceivable universe where okay so maybe sixteen year olds as we currently understand them um, don't necessarily engage at the level that we'd want them to but 
would they, if given the opportunity, if we said, hey, we're, this age is going to be lowered, do you think the collective 16, 17, 18-year-old population would then, okay, you're going to entrust us with this. We're going to then in turn research. We're going to put the work in, even though historically we haven't, because you know maybe in their mind it didn't matter. Yeah, I, I have my doubts. And so I, I guess yeah. what I would say is you'd want to see, and this gets into a whole other subject of what you think about the school system and if they are the ones to be training, but you'd want to see it much more focused on in their schooling, right? Like hmm. how to think things through and much more uh, a focus that when at the end of this, you're going to get to vote, you know, in the next election or whatever else. And um, Which we already kind of do, though, a little bit, right? Kind Isn't of, there, kind of. I, mean, I just know the conversations I'm having with my 15-year-old. It's still, it's it's even the things she wants. So it's still very moldable. And again, there's a lot of 20s, 30s, 40s who know nothing and don't care. <laughs> right, so right. this is a little bit of idealism that, you know, when you're in your 40s, you care and you actually are learning about the right. people you're voting for. My daughter, I just know, and she's really smart, but she's still just kind of learning the system and how to put it all together. So could we fast forward that to a younger age? Maybe. I guess I just don't see the reason why. Like, let's just keep working them. And uh, yeah, I I do want to, I, this is the speaking out of both sides of our mouth, though. I do want to say 16-year-olds and them, I think we undersell their maturity. And I want yeah. to celebrate that. And I want to continue building into them in the church. Yeah. Uh, so maybe I'm not willing to take it to voting, but that's, I want to take it a more, more steps than what we're doing now. When most of us are like, ah, 16 year olds, all they want to do is play video games and stay up late and they're good for nothing. And you're like, no, I think they have a lot to offer our culture and our society. Well, and, and maybe to play the other side of this, you mentioned like, well, maybe later once they've known the system, maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe, maybe, maybe they become so indoctrinated into this quote unquote system. Like we celebrate the innovators of, of tech, for example, it's, not usually the guy that's like already a part of the big machine, but the guy inventing something in his garage. Yep. So like in the tech world, in entertainment world, in music world, the innovators, the people that aren't yet a part of the system are the ones we celebrate. And yet we're, we're going to say, ah, wait until we can uh, fully download the system into your brain. That's when you're, <laughs> that's when you're able to vote. Maybe there really could be yeah. some wisdom to a kid that isn't yet like totally shaped and formed by this system that would allow them to like think – outside the box a bit in a yep. way that maybe as a culture we could really benefit. Makes sense. I guess I, I want them to, to, I want to do a better job saying that we need to um, do a better job training our, our students in that age group. So still build into them, still hold them to a high level. I'm probably just not comfortable dropping the, and you also know somebody, all these politicians have an ulterior motive for it. <laughs> yeah. You're like, what's true. the angle? What's I the angle here? I knew say that. I was wondering <laughs> when that was going to come out. Well, we'd love to know, what do you think? Should we lower the voting age of 16? You can text us. You can find us on Facebook. You can go online. You can just go outside in your front porch and yell it if you want. We'd love to <laughs> in know the form of a what pun. you think. In the form of a pun would be ideal. That's right. You're listening to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Stimkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show about diving into the questions, the stuff without easy answers, the stuff that honestly is sometimes messy, sometimes tense. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. Now you can text us. You just text the number 68683. That's 68683. And then in your actual text, write the, the letters CG for Common Good first. And then your question, your thought, your anecdote, your pun. Throw the pun in. <laughs> jokes of any kind. <laughs> and uh, we were just talking about, okay, so this idea of uh, possibly lowering the voting age to 16 and uh, if you're just joining us, you should go back and listen to the podcast. Yes. Uh, so so that that's part of the discussion. And now uh, there's this other story that we found about students um, skipping school 
in protest, um, mainly around the topic of uh, climate change. Yes. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, it says thousands of students. It's on NBC News. Thousands of students across the United States were expected to stage school walkouts uh, this upcoming Friday, I believe, joining peers around the world to demand action on climate change. Uh, the student said there's a real disconnect between what was being taught in the classroom, that climate change poses an existential threat, and how politicians were reacting. Hmm. And so here's the quote from the 17-year-old. The, pl- the, cl- the political climate in the states right now is doing nothing. They're bargaining with our future. Hmm. Uh, and so this goes right off the heels of what you and I just talked about, right? right. Should 16-year-olds be able to vote? And are they understanding the issues well enough um, and this one, there's complexity to this one for me because they want uh, they want an implementation of the Green New Deal championed by uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez right out of New York. And I think the Green New Deal personally is a bad idea. Um, but there's something that I do like because now I've hit the age where we look down at like 16 and 17 year olds and you're like, oh, kids, just stop, you know, stay in your lane. Right. And but I really like that they're kind of raising up and having their voice like. Some people were annoyed that the high school kids after Parkland were so out there, right? And I found it inspiring. I found it kind of inspiring that they were the ones who were affected by it and said, no, no, we're not going to wait for our politicians to stand up. We're going to stand up. And Mm. so I think the part of this show today is going to be talking out of both sides of our mouth because (laughs) uh, I would like to say I'm really – yes, I want to cheer kids on. I want to call them kids. I want to cheer students on. Right. Young men and women, what you believe in, go for it. Read about it. Know what you're talking about. Go for it, even if I don't necessarily agree with what you're saying. Okay. So, but but to what degree, though? Like, how, what is the limitation of Brian's quote unquote go for it energy or patience or, because, like, let's say, Mm, I mean, this is is a little absurd, but let's say they're, they're marching out. Every day. Not, now they're not going to school at all. It's a new issue every day. Like, how long of uh, how, how long a runway do you have personally for, yeah, kids, like, you know, protest or speak your mind? Uh, when it comes to leaving school, probably my runway is really short. Really? Like, I would tell the principal if I was talking to him, like, yeah, give them detention, suspend, they're skipping school. Like, okay. Help them feel the consequences okay. of their protesting. Okay. Like, if it were my daughter and she was like, hey, I want to walk out, we're doing this walkout about whatever. Right. Can I do it? I'll say, yeah, but you've got to take the consequences that come with it. We're not going to go fight your battle. Remember yesterday That's we talked good. about snowplow parents. Yeah, right. I'm right. not going to write the letter to the principal going, hey, little Johnny was, you know, doing her First Amendment right. Like, no, there's consequences for speaking up. But you would say to your daughter, though, hey, if this is an issue you care about, go for it and face the consequences. I you, would. You, would, you would hold both intentions. I would talk to my daughter to make sure she understood not just what she was protesting. Hey, I want to make sure this isn't just because your three right. best friends are walking out about That's a good point. X. Right. Uh, but tell me what you're – and if I thought that she felt strongly about it, I would eventually tell her. And if I disagreed, I would tell her why I disagree. Hmm. Uh, but hey, you know what? This is a good learning experience for you. And if you want to walk out, but know that the principal already sent the email that said everyone who does it is getting an in-school detention. Okay. So I'm not going to get you out of that. Right. Like, I'm not going to tell you that's there's consequences to your actions. And uh, uh, I, I would say you've got to know that. Right. And, and I would encourage her. And yeah, I'm okay with it. If she was doing it day after day in school, I'd be like, no, we're not doing this anymore. Which, like, you're, the, you're, you're, you got to learn here. The but, day after day example is a little absurd. Yep. I'm just trying to get to the heart of, uh, okay, so how do we, I, you know, and my bent is as a parent, but the, yep. I, just as a people, as a culture, as people of faith, as people of 
you know, quote unquote, followers of the way, if I if I could bring it there, much of the early church's behavior yep. could could be characterized as a sort of protest, yes. as a sort of civil disobedience. So you could make the case that our our very the very roots of our tradition are found in in some in some way short circuiting the system. Yes, short circuiting, yes. standing at least in opposition to. Uh, okay, the empire behaves this way. We believe that the way of Jesus is different. Yep. And here's here's how that looks in our life. Now, that's not to say, and you and I have talked about this in a number of different ways, that every every outcry of a Christ follower is is something that we agree with. Right. Just because you're outcrying doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, I agree yep. with the conclusion you came. And th- that's I don't mean to overstate the obvious, yep. but like. It, it is. There is a different part of my heart that's sort of triggered when someone's protesting for a cause that I also believe in. And then, uh, unfortunately, and this is um, just me laying cards on the table, an ugly part of my heart that when someone's protesting a thing I don't believe in, it's sort of like, 100%. oh, what are you doing? What yep. are you, oh, come on. Like, it's it's like when, you know, if if you're late to a job interview or you're late to work, speeding is fine, right? <laughs> like, oh, I have a place to go. Yeah. If somebody else is speeding, like, oh, that jerk. Yep. What are they, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I wouldn't say that, but yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> So now spin this forward to when it's one of your children. All right. Right. This happened. uh, My I think it was after Parkland last year. The kids at Downers Grove North did a big walkout about gun control, I believe. Hmm. And my daughter and I had a really good talk about it. And I didn't think she really understood the issue fully like any of us do. Right. But Hmm. like there's a lot of understanding still to go on. But I said, hey, you I didn't have to agree with what she was doing in order for her to uh, do that walkout, you yeah. know, and I, we had that talk, like there's going to be consequences and you're going to, if you're willing to own the consequences, then you do what you believe. And part of this gets to me, like we can't have it both ways. You and I have done so many stories bemoaning the millennials and the next generation and the lower, you know, the teenagers who are, you know, lazy or this or right. that. And then we can't into the same, the same breath go, yeah, but we don't want you to think for yourselves <laughs> and exercise your first amendment right, right and do right. this like you can't have it both ways and, and you got to wrestle with it and that's why you know for my daughter if if you're i think our role as a parent is to help them understand to talk them through issues to help them understand what engagement looks like mm. to help them understand consequences and then whether you know sometimes you got to let them go suffer the consequences and away we go now a walkout with a detention is one thing right if there were huge consequences, I might step in. Oh, you know, see, I, and that's where it gets nebulous for me. I, this what's is where the, metric? the gray area is. Right. How do you measure what what's a acceptable consequence yep. and a huge consequence? Yep. And I don't. I have a sense that you don't know where that line yep. is necessarily. We, we haven't had to wrestle with that in my home. That's yet. a good point. <laughs> but I think probably yep. a lot of people listening are in the same place. Like we assume, yep. like, oh, I'll know in my heart once yep. it's crossed over from acceptable to unacceptable. Hundred percent. But I don't know. That's always the case. Agreed. I think it's, it is really. It's one thing to talk about it in radio booth. It's another thing entirely <laughs> when your kid is brought home by the cops. Yeah. And you're like, yep. oh shoot. Yep. Yep. We've crossed into a different territory here, yep. and my kid might still be right. Mm-hmm. Just because my kid, oh boy, I'm going to step in right here. It's I? hard, <laughs> It's hard. <laughs> my kid's 17 months, so like, yep. what do I, you know, yep. I'm like, I have this idea that I'm going to be so much wiser <laughs> by the time my kid is making these decisions, yeah. but I, I actually have no hope for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so true. But it's a, it's a worthy, it's a worthwhile discussion it because, is. yeah, like even, even in terms of like declaring things like Jesus is Lord, yeah. that would have been like massively problematic because Caesar is Lord mm-hmm. would would have been like the slogan, yes. the propaganda slogan of the empire. Yes, and so these, you know, this phrase now that for us is like, oh, it's nice. It's a nice Jesus part. Of, is Lord. It's yeah. a nice part of a hymn now, yep. and I have it yep. needle stitched on a pillow. You're like, no, no, no. This would have been revolutionary, yep. and people were being executed yes. for it. 
And uh, so how we apply that in a modern Western context really with, hard. with our kids, man, oh, man, oh, it's man. Really hard. Like, and, but you, as I said, you can't have it both ways. Yesterday, you and I got so mad about this whole concept of snowplow parents, right? Yeah, right. Trying to clear the decks for everything so their kids never face resistance. Well, you can't have it both ways. And so part of your role as a parent is not to clear everything or make all their decisions, but to help them process and help them talk about things. No kidding, man. Talk about entering into the mess. Yes. Well, coming up next, we have an interview with Drew Johnson. Just to give you a little teaser uh, before becoming an associate professor, he was a high school dropout, a skinhead, a punk rock drummer, a <laughs> combat veteran, an IT supervisor, and a pastor. All things he says he hopes none of his kids ever become. <laughs> so that's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. That's awesome. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show all about diving into the mess and the tense, the gray, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. You can also text us now. 68683 is the number. And then in your actual text, just put the letter CG for Common Good first, and then your question, your thought, your anecdote. And uh, we are absolutely thrilled to have on the phone with us right now uh, Drew Johnson. Drew, wel- welcome to the show. Uh, thrilled to be here. So Drew is the uh, an associate professor of biblical and theological studies at the King's College in New York City. But before that, listen to this list. He's a high school dropout, a skinhead, a punk rock <laughs> drummer, as was I, by the way, a uh, combat veteran, IT supervisor, and pastor. And he says all things that I hope my, uh, none of my kids ever become, <laughs> which just makes me laugh because I was, I was three out of those things. So. <laughs> oh. That, that makes me really happy. But you you uh, you wrote a book, um, which I love on so many levels. It's called Human Rights, R-I-T-E-S. So it's both interesting and a pun. So those are two, my two love languages. And uh, I really, really love this idea because particularly Brian and I are pastors mm-hmm. in sort of Protestant traditions. But I've grown up with this like love for rites and rituals and never quite known how to uh, synthesize the two. So I'd love just to, just to kick us off, how do rituals shape our lives? Um, well, yeah, it's, it's the, the question that I seek to answer in the book is basically what is a ritual and then what's it doing to us, mm. both as individuals and within the community. Um, and I also come out of the Protestant tradition, was a pastor in the Protestant tradition, uh, and I had the same uh, issues of, uh, I always knew the body is important, it's all connected. Right. Uh, but honestly, uh, in the Protestant tradition, we don't do a lot of work to connect all of these things together. So I, the reason I use ritual, too, because I know liturgy is a really popular word right now, and sacrament, hey, it's always been a popular word. <laughs> right, right. Um, but the reason I stick to ritual instead um, is because I think ritual gives us a large umbrella of everything that happens in our lives into which we can plug liturgies and sacraments. Mm. So, um, you know, I've got three daughters and a son, mm. and, uh, my, and they're all teenagers. So, oh, um, wow, we're, we're praying we're for talking, you. We're talking about rituals a lot right now. <laughs> but, you know, if you think about it, um, Kind of, they've gotten me thinking about whole new aspects of, uh, of the ritual world. That basically everything we do is a ritual. So mm. sitting in front of a computer and, and watching, you know, an hour of YouTube videos all on beauty and makeup tips, mm. um, we know that that shapes and crafts a person's view of themselves, their, their view of them, their place in the world, their view compared to their peers. So it's not like crazy to say that uh, what we're doing with our bodies, even sitting there and kind of passively receiving information, we're not actually passively receiving. We're, 
we're posturing our bodies, we're attending our focus to certain things, mm-hmm. and we're mm-hmm. thinking about ourselves in relation to what we're seeing there. So what can seem very innocuous is actually, in, in many ways, shaping our view of the world. And that's just one hour of a YouTube a series of YouTube videos. If you think about uh, this expands into everything we do. And we don't get a choice whether we're doing these things or not. We're, we're doing these rituals with our bodies. The question is, what are we doing? What, you know, who's telling us to do these things? And, and what are the outcomes of them? When did you start to become conscious or start noticing the role of rituals in your life? And how did that change your day-to-day life? Yeah, and I think, you know, the biography, I kind of joke about it. You know, that is like the sexiest biography they could put of me on there. Uh, <laughs> you know, you can't you can't just skip past that. One of my African-American uh, friends, you know, her mom got bought the book, and she goes, do you know he's a racist? Uh, <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> I was a little worried about it. But, I mean, uh, I actually was uh, – actually, my, my sister's half black. My stepfather was black. Uh, I was a, not a racist skinhead. I feel like I should probably clarify that. Most That's worth noting. Racist. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Yes. But, um, but I was, you know, definitely um, ran the streets and ran into racist skinheads. But I think there was this kind of like I was always conscious. Growing up in Oklahoma in the 1970s and 80s, with mixed race family, uh, you're very conscious conscious of your body and how people mm. relate to you by the way you look and the kinds of things you do in reaction to everybody around. I think the first time I actually noticed rituals, though, and how they were particularly shaping me was uh, in boot camp, where uh, is the weirdest, most intensely ritualized environment, I think, in the world. Uh, you mm. can't pick up a fork without following a particular ritual. And if mm. you don't follow the ritual, they just yell at you. Yeah, yeah. right, right. <laughs> you know, my dad's advice going into boot camp, he was like, just when somebody's getting yelled at, just listen very closely to why they're getting yelled at and don't do that thing. Right? <laughs> uh, and, and what you're doing is you're second person, you know, learning or third person, you're kind of learning the rituals. Um, and the thing is, you know, boot camp, none of those rituals are reasonless. Like, they all have a particular focus. And right. I can actually, you know, we can enumerate them by the end. When you look back, you can see. But what I like to say is all those little crazy rituals, like folding your underwear with a pair of tweezers and a ruler, it's got an invisible arrow through it that points towards something. Mm. Um, and it's one of the, the, the issues of ritual we'll probably have to talk about here in our little time, but um, is that as people who participate in rituals, we don't always see the invisible arrow and we don't always know ahead of time what it's pointing us towards yeah, that's or, how it's, or how it's going to get us there. Um, and so a lot of what I talk about in the book, as you probably noticed, is uh, a lot of this hangs on who we trust and why we're doing the things they tell us to do. Mm, that's fantastic. Okay, so in, in Chapter 6, you talk about rituals being humane when they come from, when they come from our love for God and our care for others. I'm really I'm fascinated in that concept. Can you can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so if we're doing rituals all the time, and some of them come from various sources, you know, like uh, dating advice that comes from Sex in the City or something like that, or um, uh, we we have all kinds of tiny little rituals we follow all the time. Um, if uh, a lot of them don't respect our bodies, and you know, if I could give mm-hmm. one example now, I, I I teach mostly 18 to 24 year olds and um, you know, it's hard not to notice how much the iPhone or the Android has completely ritualized their lives. Yeah, yeah right. Um, it has mine for and, sure. <laughs> and yeah, and, and yeah, it's older folk too. And 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 in doing so, it's it's a very you know, I have an iPhone. I think there's a proper relationship you can have with it, um, but it really has inhumanely taken over their lives. So 
uh, as a friend of mine who's a medical doctor has pointed out, um, you know, the iPhone, the apps, the buzzes, the dings, you know, there's a lot mm. of research on this stuff. None of it is hopeful. It's all pretty sad. Yeah, right. Um, but none of that, is, like, that is not designed for your body. Like, your mind is actually not designed uh, to be constantly interrupted uh, mm. by buzzes and dings. And uh, it actually is kind of an, an inhumane device unless you lock it down and really control how, it's, mm. how you uh, interact with wow. it. And so I think, you know, when we think that's just the iPhone, but it's probably been the most ritualizing thing in our society in the last, you know, millennia. If you think about that, uh, you think about, okay, well, what's so wrong with this? Well, it taps into our desires, our lust, uh, the apps tap into our, our wanting to belong. Mm. Um, they're taking good things that mm-hmm. I think God has designed us to be, and they're twisting them a little bit. And so... When we think about our ritual life, we have to think about the body, how it's designed. I, I'm a Christian, so I'd say how it's gone wrong, too. It's a, it's a broken body, right. a broken person. Um, and then how we can work with that. And then, I, you know, I would say you, we should probably look a lot more closely at the, the rituals in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament and think about what God is trying to do through those as well. That's good. Not necessarily trying to decode them and just see them as symbols that need to be, like, mathematically worked out, but what they're trying to accomplish that's we could keep talking about this for a long time and i'm wondering yeah. the last thing i want to go over here in the last minute or two that we have thank you so much for your time today by the way is this exercise of ritual inventory you talk about could you oh, just yeah. unpack that a little bit for us what's the benefit of ritual inventory how would somebody do that yeah so uh, i think you know when you talk about when you're doing something like when you're overspending i remember larry burkett if you don't i, I do remember him, when, yeah. I be, when i became a christian he was one of the first people i listened to on radio and um he would you know he'd say like look if you're overspending you don't just stop spending you don't just change your spending habits you begin by taking an inventory take mm-hmm. everything you do and just to just see what you're doing an audit of your life and then kind of reflecting back on it and seeing where you can make strategic changes to make sure that your spending of your money is kind of in a godly plan. And I, I thought that, I always thought he was a pretty wise person. Um, and so when I think about rituals, and especially since I'm sitting here saying, okay, here's how we're screwed up with rituals. Here's some good stuff. But, man, here's all the stuff we're not getting right. right. Yeah. Um, I thought, well, I have to leave people with some kind of a tool. So the tool is basically, A, to just kind of itemize your life in kind of daily chunks, weekly chunks, yearly chunks. You know, So yearly would be like your Christmases, your birthdays. Weekly would be you know, your kind of the cycles, the habits, the church schedule. Hopefully that's in there somewhere. <laughs> and then daily, you know, when I wake up, what do I touch first? How do I handle things? You know, what do I do and in what order and why? Um, and then asking these three questions, who or what? has scripted this ritual for me, like brushing mm. my teeth. My, you know, my dentist or my parents have scripted this for me for this reason, right? Helps me understand health, dental health. Although I have to tell you that when you brush your teeth day in and day out, there's no actual evidence to the person that this is actually helping you. Uh, taking, that's a great point. You know, it's, it, that's invisible to you. It's on right. trust that we do these things and that, that this all fits together. So that's the first question. Who is scripting this for you? And should you be listening to this person right? mm. or this community or this cultural ideal? Uh, then second, um, how do you practice it safely? It, you know, it has to be all rituals are improvised. So is there a, is there a good way to, um, uh, to yeah, I think of communion. Um, you know, can you use cornbread in communion? Can you use Pepsi mm. in communion? Like, <laughs> right, that, right. All communion is improvised. It doesn't say in the New Testament exactly how you're supposed to do it. So you ha- it's always left up to some improvisation. But when have you overstepped? When have you violated the very notion of what the, the ritual is trying to do with mm. the community? 
And then third, um, how can it go wrong? Because all good things, I'm convinced, can be turned wrong in some way. That's right. So I, I think of even something like daily Bible reading, how it can slip into kind of atomistic uh, bibliolatry, where you kind of worship the Bible itself. Hmm. You're never actually reading all of Matthew. You're just reading a sentence at a time of the Sermon on the Mount. Well, that's, you know, that might be good for focus if you know all of Matthew really well. Right, right. But if, if you don't know Matthew in and out, you probably shouldn't just be reading one sentence and trying to figure out what God's plan for your life for that day is. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, yeah. You need, you need to gulp, not sip in that context. There you go. Context. That's so, so good. That's so, so good. So thinking how even something good can turn flimsy or even maybe even dark into an addiction or it's problematic in some way. Outstanding. That I have so many other questions, and I would love to. I want to put you on the spot because I'd love to have you back on the show again sometime because uh, this is stuff that I, I love thinking about, I love wrestling through. And if you're just joining us, we've been uh, joined by Dr. Drew Johnson, author of the new book called Human Rights, R-I-T-E-S. You can learn more at drewjohnson.com. That's D-R-U Johnson.com or on Twitter at D-R-U underscore Johnson. Uh, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for thank joining you. us today. It was genuinely my pleasure, and I'll be happy to be back, be back on whenever you can have me. Great. We would love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins along with Brian Fromm. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. You can also text us your thoughts now. It doesn't have to just be thoughts. Puns. Puns. Jokes. Anecdotes, riddles. I haven't said riddles yet. <laughs> Texas, your riddle. The number is 68683. And then in your message, first type the letter CG for common good. And then uh, your riddle. Uh, your you riddle. That? <laughs> Man, I hope we get a riddle. That would, that would make my day. <laughs> That'd be awesome. All right, so you came across a story involving Francis Chan, I who uh, I, have, I have a lot of love for, uh, particularly in some of his unpredictability. Like, I, I just think uh, he's a really earnest dude, and uh, I've. Again, with any Christian leader, I don't think I agree with 100% of what anybody says. Uh, but he just seems like a guy with a lot of integrity, yep. a lot of like real passion, and uh, not just passion, but like gospel-rooted passion. Yeah. Uh, but this story you came across, uh, I just found really interesting. I love Francis Chan. Like he's some of his uh, both live, like at Exponential or other places. Good plug. Or yeah, seriously, or listening podcasts or stuff. Francis Chan uh, will always challenge you and. Uh, he puts his money where his mouth is, right? He uh, he was in a mega church. He kind of was living the dream, and he left the mega church, saying mm-hmm. it just doesn't feel right to me. And he started something completely new. Um, so he was getting some negative press because he spoke at something called the Send Conference, uh, run by charismatic Christian evangelist Lou Engel, uh, and it was hosted. Um, so it's in Orlando, Florida, at the end of February. Okay, the lineup includes Chan, Benny Hinn, Todd White, Daniel Kalenda, and some music. And uh, he was getting kind of ripped for it because basically most of the speakers, not necessarily the ones I just named there, but most of the lineup were people uh, who would land in the world of the prosperity gospel. And you and I have spent a lot of time talking about the prosperity gospel on here and the dangers of it. And Francis Chan, uh, what makes this ironic is Francis Chan, I can't think of anybody further away from the prosperity gospel Hmm. than Francis Chan, right? And so he was getting a lot of flack about this. And I would ask, uh, it made uh, me think about, like, should somebody like Francis Chan or, you know, enter your big name pastor, speaker, whatever, uh, should they speak in places where they maybe don't line up theologically with the people who are there? Mm. Is there something 
to be gained there? Or should guys like Francis Chan, is it guilt by association, right? Like you're hurting your witness uh, by entering into a conference that is at least reported to be more prosperity gospel. So I think that's what the article is about. It's interesting. And Francis Chan came out with a very long kind of statement and he kind of almost apologized said, I need to be more clear about this, but then basically said, listen, we can't just talk to our own tribe. We can't mm. just talk to our own people. There's value in going and even challenging uh, what some of the other people might be saying. And right. so I read that and I found that very interesting. I'm curious what you think. Well, even as I'm, as I'm hearing you talk about this uh, like guilty by association thing, yep. not, not to run it out completely to the end, but like, wasn't that part of the accusation against Jesus yes. by, by the religious elite? Like, oh, yeah. no, he's hanging out with those people and not just hanging out with like sharing meals with going to weddings. Like it, it wasn't just a uh, like a parachute mission strip. Je- Jesus was like hanging out with yep. spending time with, you know, the, the word diatribo, right? This like like shoulder on shoulder. Like they, they were there was some real investment there with, I imagine, people that he didn't agree with yes. theologically. So, I you know. I guess I'm kind of showing my cards here. Like to me, sometimes this idea of like only speak at conferences where you line up with all of the doctrinal statements. And uh, to me, that, that to me, uh, again, if that's, if that's how you're wired, more power to you. I just think it doesn't make sense to me to only like roll exclusively with the people who look, talk, act, and think just like you. I think it's everything wrong with our culture. Just it's the, everything the whole, wrong with our culture. Sh- okay. Maybe that's hyperbole, but <laughs> it's like the gotcha culture, right? Somebody saw on Twitter, I'm sure that he spoke at the Seton conference and they saw Benny Hinn there and they immediately go, see, I told you Francis Chan's a prosperity gospel guy. Uh, and yeah, if they had that's... listened to what he said, mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm very confident. If you've ever read Crazy Love, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I don't think Francis Chan struggles with the prosperity well, gospel. Not, not that theologies can't change either. The book's you know not brand new either. I know that people can True. you know grow and morph and shift, and we've we've seen that a lot. I think in this culture, I just think the idea that like oh because you're at blank conference, you must also now be aligned with whatever theology this conference like that to me that just feels so small yep. like i don't that feels very one-dimensional i don't know why we do that and i do think you and i have felt that a little bit with this show like is we want to be able to bring on people i think that we disagree with right like we want to or who don't like line up perfectly with us nope i only want perfect <laughs> perfect alignment at all times i'm, I'm going out on the island here <laughs> oh, no. i'm going out on the limb here <laughs> guys pray for brian <laughs> i think that we we desire to bring in people that we may not agree with right whether it's you know uh, Dr. Ahmad the other day or Ahmad from um, or whether it be uh, and you and I don't even agree on everything. And so you don't. <laughs> and so <laughs> I think but you and I, we've had talks like, huh, is that one too far? Can we bring that person on? Can we do this? And yeah, I think right. even we have felt that tension. Uh, like, will people be like, well, now you're that or that. And, right. and it, there is a weird tension that like hyper categorizing yeah. that just happens. Yeah. Like, oh, if you're do that, you're this, this and this. <laughs> and you're like, well, no, I just wanted to have a conversation with the person. Right. Right. And what I hear Francis Chan saying is, hey, I just wanted to go in and speak in that venue and say, hey, I want to call you to a more biblical foundation. If you read his statement, just a more gospel centered foundation of, you know, and, and and speak a little bit against the prosperity gospel. But he did say. You know, probably need to do a better job of kind of distancing myself publicly, but huh. it, it feels like the whole gotcha thing of just people going, 
you know, oh, he's there than that. And and it's just interesting. I think our culture, the Christian culture, I think mirrors the culture at large. And I just think we got to be careful with that. I, I have read some uh, some fairly scholarly work that would assert that in like ancient Jewish traditions, the place of disagreement, mm-hmm. it was actually what they called holy ground. Wow. The place where like you and I, with love and affection, have space to disagree, which is our vision for this show. That's really good. To create space, to lean in rather than creating these stronger echo chambers and confirmation biases and I think uh, man what a challenge to continue to lean in even and especially with people we disagree with yes well this is the common good on AM 1160 hope for your life it's time for a conversation about the things we share in common our common hopes our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hi, friends. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show that we're hoping at least is creating space for dialogue. We don't want it just to be a couple of talking heads or uh, (laughs) an interview here and there. We'd love to hear from you, and you can uh, find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to us at 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there, plus they're podcasted. I don't know if you're a podcaster or not. I am a podcaster. I, I, it's a great way, I think, to spend your time driving to. And we don't talk about it uh, often, but if you would leave us a review, like on iTunes or any of the podcast pretty platforms, please. pretty please, <laughs> for both words of affirmation, <laughs> that would help. And uh, you can also text us now. It doesn't just yeah. have to be a question. It could be a thought or feedback. The number is 68683. And then in the actual message, first type the letter CG for common good. And then uh, your question, thought, pun, or riddle. We'd love to hear from you there. But Brian, you you found this uh, this really beefy article. It was I'm, a big I'm, one. I'm holding it. It's a big one. Lamenting the trees that died for this article. <laughs> That's forced. Uh, but you, you, yeah, you shared it, and you said, Ian, I thought of you immediately. I did. Why? Why is that? I, you've always done a good job at talking about philanthropy and oh, where, you. and specifically that uh, it is not just Christians should be nice to everybody. Right. But that it's rooted in something. And that's the Imago Dei. And so the Imago Dei is is the image of God, that everybody there's a belief that everybody is created in the image of God. And therefore, everybody has intrinsic value. Yep. Um, And so this article, when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is right up your alley, because it goes back to the early church. And it argues that this view of 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 Imago Dei, uh, even in the early church, about how they. Uh, viewed everybody, caused them to give people value that the Roman Empire didn't value, and therefore caused that early Christian church to look really different than the, than the occupying Roman Empire. And in many ways, that's why Christianity spread. Like, obviously, we believe it spread through the power of the Holy Spirit, but right. a lot of ways, it was the way that the early Christians treated people that caused people to go, wow, there's something different about them, and that's rooted uh, they didn't sit back and go, well, what's our strategy? How about our strategy be, let's be nice to people? Yeah, right. But instead they said, you know what? Intrinsically, people are created in the image of God. Therefore, that rules how we treat them. Yeah, totally. So I, it's the, the, the article is a couple years old, but I highly encourage you to check it out and read it at length. It's uh, at abc.net. 
But the, the headline, you're right, did totally catch my attention. The incarnation and early Christian philanthropy. And the, the paragraph that for me kind of sets the whole thing up, I'll, I'll just share it. It says, uh, the Christian understanding of the Imago Dei, which means the image of God, viewed in the light of the doctrine of the, of the incarnation was mm-hmm. to have four important consequences for practical ethics that became increasingly apparent as Christianity began to penetrate the world of the Roman Empire. Together, they represent a radical departure from the social ethics of classical paganism. So those four that they talk about at length brilliantly are philanthropy, uh, intrinsic value mm-hmm. of human life, uh, the nature of the body, and the poor. And mm. uh, you're right. I, we've kind of touched on a couple of these things in a number of different ways, but I've ne- I don't think I've ever seen succinctly yes. in one place uh, something that has so clearly articulated. I, I think for me, the thing that kind of makes my heart beat fast is like man, this, this was the heartbeat and how often uh, I lament how far we are from that, yes. you know, as uh, individually, I'll turn it on myself, but sometimes corporately as the, as the big C church. So like, let's, let's just walk through some of what, what you find yes. convicting in particular about, about this take. And like, what are some ways forward when you, when you have to stare down face to face, like, Oh man, this, this is like, like you were saying before there was websites, before there's, there were jumbotrons or any yes. of that, like the church had its generosity and compassion mm-hmm. and how, how it cared for people and that didn't just happen. Yep. Like that was that was rooted in some really deeply held beliefs that led to some really radical action, which frankly got a lot of them killed. Yep. You, that's that's odd to think about. Like, oh, they were just really loving. Who would kill a group of really loving people? Yep. Uh, but on, on that's a big part of our tradition. What what about this really was convicting for you? I, I just love that that you know oftentimes we jump to strategy and we said, well, be nice yeah, to people, right, like right. treat people like Jesus, and it's that's rooted in something, and it was for them. And I think what's convicting is. They saw people with this value, even though people didn't see them with the same value, Mm. right? Like they were the looked down upon. They were the fishermen and the tax collectors and the sinners and the sick and the prostitutes and whatever else. And yet they treated people well. And so you've told the story before from the early church where the Romans, they wanted to stop this early Christianity, but they couldn't. And the letter that that, that has come up has said they treat our people better than we treat them. They started hospitals. They started caring for our sick. And that wasn't done as a strategy. That was done as a as a view of as a um, uh, out of this valuing of other people. And right. you know, for me, it's it's the poor in that society, the women in that society, uh, the the sick in that society. Those people were were just completely discarded. And then I I constantly and will spin this forward and go, man, is this still mirrored in the twenty first century church today? Yeah. Is this still uh, how we live? today in our culture. Yeah, and I, I it's a it's a big question and I don't think it's an easy yes or no because yep. uh and we've had a number of interviews with pastors where I think man you you're handling this one particular piece way better than I am yes. or they're going at it in a really unique way that I would never have anticipated. Uh but it it is convicting for me to to have to to interact with an article like this that uh, in a lot of ways is reminding me of what I already knew to be true mm-hmm. um but have gotten distracted and, you know, you, you and I have both kind of uh, admitted some of this, like sometimes yes. just even the distraction of the work of ministry, like, well, got to write another sermon yep. and you like forget like the the incredible privilege and honor it is to deliver a message yeah. when it becomes just part of your expectation. Sometimes like Thursday, the heart, yeah, yeah. totally the heartbeat. Oh, man, we do. Man, we're, we're caring for uh, underprivileged communities during Christmas or in the summertime. That's just a part of, of what we do. And we're not thinking through. Oh yeah, people have intrinsic value simply because yes. they are, and that that isn't just manifest in like 
mission strips and service projects. It's also how I talk to my neighbor. Yeah. It's how I interact with people online. Like, oh, that principle, the the dignity of human life applies not just when I'm I'm at an event with my church, mm. but how I actually talk to people and maybe even more convictingly, how I talk about people when they're not there, right? Yes. Or like the poor. Like I, mm-hmm. there's not a, a Christian I know that wouldn't at least say out loud, oh yeah, we're to care about the poor. The follow-up question that's always convicting is, what are you what are you doing about it? Yep. Like, we know we're supposed to, yep. and we'd all sort of nod our head in a church service, like, yeah, I care for the poor, obviously. But then the question, you know, and I'll ask it of myself, what are you, what are you actually doing, Ian Simpkins, yep. to care about the poor? Yep. And sometimes that answer is uh, less than desirable. And not only that, but it's, uh, I mean, think about what's one of the things that plagues our country right now. It's racism. It's Yeah, right. It's... It's this viewing of one group differently than you view yourself. Like what hmm. what would it actually change if um, if we looked at every person, regardless of, you know, uh, social status, regardless of race, regardless of gender, and we're able to say, you know what? We are created by the same God. We are all in the image of God. And we've always said God is not colorblind, right? Like he created black, he created white. Right. Like there right. are differences, but there's not value differences. Hmm. And just because someone's poor doesn't make them less valuable than you. Just because someone's a different race doesn't make them less valuable than you. And uh man, if the if the church could get this today uh to greater values, maybe when I say the church, I just mean me, maybe. Uh, <laughs> if we could live this out more, if this is more what drove us, I think the church would go back to looking so different because our culture, I believe, is going away from this on a daily basis. This isn't the trajectory of our greater culture. So if this became the trajectory of the church, man, what a difference the church would make. Well, and it it goes after, too, in a pretty profound way, some of this idea of like ancient Greek dualism, too. Like sometimes what I often find is that uh, either we're in one camp where we're uh, really oblivious to the needs of the poor or... We're like so constantly hyper focused and obsessed with it that we also fail to take care of our own bodies. And this article just brings some really interesting things to light about, man, how we care for our bodies. Yep. The nature of the of the body is not insignificant, and 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 how we like the stuff we put into our bodies, yes. our commitment to sleep. I'm obviously preaching to myself right now because <laughs> I'm terrible at all these things. Like those those aren't secondary issues. It's not like oh, I have my spiritual activities. And then like, if I have time, I'll care about the body. Like the church understood them, the early church in particular, like these two things are synthesized. Yes. Like how we care for our body is a spiritual act. Yes. And uh, man, how, how far I think we've drifted away from that reality. Absolutely. Well, I'm really excited for this interview that's coming up next. We're going to interview uh, pastor Stephen Barr, who has a, uh, a church in Disney world and uh, the implications of doing ministry uh, in and around a place like Disney World is an absolutely fascinating concept to me. I think you're going to love it. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Who's the leader of the Okay, just to be clear, that's the decision that our producer made. <laughs> just as a caveat. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show taking a deep dive, hopefully creating some space for conversation, for dialogue, for us to not always agree. And uh, we'd love to chat with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can go to 1160hope.com. You can also text us now. The number is 68683. And uh, in your message body, you just type the letters CG for Common Good, and then your question, your thought, your anecdote. And uh, I am absolutely thrilled to have on the phone right now, Pastor Stephen Barr. Welcome to the show, sir. 
Hey, it is my pleasure to be here. I love you guys. I love following me online, and uh, it's an honor to be here. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Thanks so much. I just want to let everyone know a little bit about who you are. Your bio is one of my favorite bios of all time. Uh, Stephen Barr is the founding pastor of Cast Member Church at Walt Disney World and is immersed in the culture of the largest media and entertainment company in the world. Cast Member Church is the hub of a disciple-making movement resonating around the heart of the entertainment industry and is recognized as one of the most innovative churches in the United States. Stephen brings a unique and culturally contextualized way of thinking to the church and to disciple-making. He's the author of a brand new book entitled A Guide to a Life Beyond Imagination. It's fantastic. It comes out on uh, Amazon in April, but it can be purchased now at disciplemakingsolutions.com, or you can learn more at castmemberchurch.com, and I am thrilled that you yeah. are joining us here today. And I just, just to start us, can you just let us know, like, what is Cast Member Church, and how is it different <laughs> than other churches in the area, maybe? Oh, you bet. Uh, Cast Member Church is designed exclusively for those that work in the Walt Disney culture. Uh, we've started at Walt Disney World, which is, a lot of people don't realize that it's, uh, the Walt Disney World property is 47 square miles. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and it has 74,000 employees, and they're called cast members. So that's why we're called Cast Member Church. But uh, Walt Disney World is the size of the city of the San, city of San Francisco city limits. No and kidding. So, uh, yeah, it's huge. It's huge. And so uh, it is. Um, this is kind of where entertainers come to cut their teeth. Not just entertainers, but business people. Hmm. You name it. The the brightest and the best want to work for Disney because it's a great uh, stepping stone. And so we just realized there was no ministry here hmm. that would reach these, these dreamers and doers. And we thought, man, if God can get a hold of these young people as they're, as they're forming their chops when it comes to entertainment, if they could have the gospel and a, and a disciple-making mentality, imagine what could happen as they move ahead into the entertainment business. Right. That's fascinating. I have so many things I want to ask because I love Disney World. <laughs> it's true. He does. He's wearing the ears right well, now, actually. I love Disney World. Um, well, we appreciate your support. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, I guess I'm, I'm curious of how you even started this. Were you at Disney World on vacation and going, man, there's like a mission field here? Or did you grow up down there? Like, how did this even start? I was uh, I was a cast member in '91. I was oh. a keyboard player in a in a group uh, that performed out in front of Cinderella's Castle, and I remember back then looking down Main Street towards the train station, thinking, "Huh, there isn't a church here that fits the culture." As far as I can't go to church on Sundays, I can't do I can't be normal, and uh, and I realized that. It's a shame. I it, I just can't connect in with the church, mm. and I and I forgot about it. I really did. I completely forgot about that. And um, years later, I I, uh, I was in music for a long time. I was worship pastor for twenty five years, and um, then got to the age where I realized I didn't want to be that worship guy in skinny jeans, being fifty years old. <laughs> 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 and, and so uh, I, the Lord was also putting on me to plant a church, and I was going to plant in San Antonio, Texas, which is where I was living. And um, as we were putting it together, one of my leaders said, why aren't you doing this at Disney? You bleed Disney. You speak Disney. And I thought, wow. And I remembered that moment when uh, I had thought to myself, why isn't there a church there? And I feel like that was something that connected and uh, wow. kind of long story short, we changed the tactic and uh, ended up here in Orlando. That's fascinating. Okay, so so Stephen, uh, I think you know that Brian and I are both pastors. So selfishly, 
I, I have some questions about the church in general because one of the things I've noticed is that so often pastors and churches try to distance themselves from words like entertainment, but like you right. seem to write specifically about things we can learn from the entertainment industry. I'm I'm curious, uh, what are some ways that you envision that you can see the church learning from kind of the Disney culture that you've immersed yourself in? I think probably the primary thing that, at least in the Disney culture, is Disney has they have mastered storytelling. Mm. They have, they have figured it out. They know how. And what I have learned as a follower of Jesus is that I'm wired for story. That's why I, that's why I connect with movies and television. I'm wired for story because if you look through the scriptures, everything is, is not, it's not just a story. It's a real event. Right. Right. But it, it has a call to adventure. There's a challenge to be faced and there's a change that comes as a result of that of facing that challenge. Disney figured that out. Mm. And so I think if the church can recapture the wonder of story, not just the biblical narrative, but the story that each one of us possesses, oh my gosh, yeah. we can really start connecting with people on a, on a very powerful level. That's brilliant. How's the church even function? Uh, is, um, because like you said, every, all the cast members, you, you know, they're constantly working at different times. How does the church function? Is there a service time or is it more uh, just meeting with people when they're free? Talk to us about just the schedule of your church. <laughs> I love it. Um, it's, uh, it. It's kind of, uh, it, you know, our, our church strategy is real simple. We make it up as we go along. <laughs> so do we. And, uh, <laughs> You're in good company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got it. So, but what happens for us is uh, we discovered that we could not create uh, an attractional service for a couple of reasons. One, uh, Disney never closes. So having a day off, everyone having the same day off is impossible. Yeah. Number two, number two, trying to attract people. Well, we realized we cannot out Disney Disney. And so mm. we realized what was missing in the Disney culture was relationships. They, uh, they know the show. They know, I mean, they, can, they, they do it better than, than anybody. But what was missing is connection, mm. people actually connecting with each other. So we started, we started with the idea of missional communities, which I'm sure you're aware of. Sure. Yep. Uh, but but even, even those have kind of morphed into missional families. And mm. uh, each, uh, we have, a, just imagine it as a network of little micro churches all over, all over the Disney property. Uh, each one has its own schedule, its own time. They do share the same DNA. I'm responsible for that as, as the lead pastor, making sure that the DNA is going through. But the expression of that DNA is as different as my children are to me. Mm, right. And, uh, That's good. Uh, but yet, but yet uh, they have the freedom to become what God is calling them to be. So, uh, so yeah, just look at it as like if you were looking at a map of the Disney property, just all these little dots here and there, mm. meeting in hotels, uh, in food courts. And they don't just meet once a week. Uh, they do life together. So they'll hang out together. They'll eat together. And then this year, we're going to be bringing those communities together for a once-a-month gathering okay. to, be able to, capture, to be able to capture that, the more of that uh, a glimpse of heaven, so to speak, where everybody's in the same room and there's we can do things that we can't do on Disney property in in the smaller context. That's outstanding. Okay, so you've taken all of this experience in a in a pretty uh, unique context, and you've you've written a book. It's called A Guide to a Life Beyond Imagination, which doesn't come out till April. But would you just tell me a little bit about that book and what the impetus behind the book was, and like what you're hoping to accomplish with this book? Sure. Well, I didn't set out to write a book, mm-hmm. um, but what was happening 
was we had developed a disciple-making tool called the Quest Compass, which refers back to that idea of call, challenge, change that we talked about when it comes to story. And the idea was um, how to help cast members and really anyone, but at this point in time it was cast members, how to be able to see where God was working with them. Is Are they in the middle of a call? Are they facing a challenge? Are they, you know, and so we designed this really simple tool to help them identify what is God up to right now at this moment and what's the next step they need to take. Well, I just, it, you know, it started out as a napkin drawing, just something simple to explain. It was visual, but I didn't realize it would catch on. It, it really did. It became so scalable for our cast members. They were sharing it with their friends. They were, they were sharing it with people who didn't even know Christ and they were getting it. It was fantastic. And I began to share this, um, I, I guess you'd call it success with other pastors. And they're like, oh, we want to do this as well. How, mm. Show us how we can do this. And finally, I just thought, okay, I've got all this stuff. I'll just uh, you know, put it down. And I'd never written a book before. The idea even scared me, to be honest with you. But that was part of the, the challenge. Yeah. And, uh, and so I stepped into it, and we ended up with a book that I, I'm, I'm really proud of. That's I'm great. hearing uh, that pe- people are being impacted by it already. That's fantastic. You've been listening to Stephen Barr, the founding pastor of Cast Member Church at Walt Disney World, and author the brand new book, A Guide to a Life Beyond Imagination. You can learn more at castmemberchurch.com or disciplemakingsolutions.com. And uh, Stephen, I am so grateful for you, for your heart for local church, for the Big Seed Church. Thank you for joining us today and just sharing a bit of your wisdom with us. Well, the pleasure was mine, guys, anytime. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there, plus we're podcasted. If you could leave us a review, at the very least a smiley face, that would help (laughs) a a ton. A pun. (laughs) So you can text us at 68683. That's 68683. And uh, in your message, if you type the letter CG for Common Good before your comment, uh... That'll make its way right to us, and we'd love to interact with you in uh, any way that you see fit. Yep. And we, you know, it's the thing that I like about this show is the diversity of topics. Yep. I think sometimes people tuning into the middle of it are like, oh, this sounds way different than the day before. And that's usually because it is, because <laughs> there's a lot of uh-huh. things that interest us. And uh, you came across a story. In fact, I think someone shared the story with you. And this is what I love. Like, I love the, the audience getting involved, whether it be over text or over Facebook. Um, and not just like responding to what we've talked about, but also going, hey, here's a fun story right, I saw. Here's this. something interesting. Right. And, and this came from a friend of mine at my church. Uh, and she sent me this article a little while ago. And I was like, all right, I'll read it through. And all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, that's a great article. That's really, that's really interesting and uplifting. Because like you said, sometimes we do heavy topics, sometimes right. theological topics, but sometimes fun topics. Well, uh, don't leave us in suspense, Brian. What's the story? A woman wins $10,000 for reading the fine print on her insurance policy. Oh, my goodness. And I was like, well, what is it? I'm like, that's kind of crazy. That hooked me, right? I was sure. in, a Georgia school teacher won $10,000 from an insurance company for doing what dozens before her failed to do. She read the fine print. She was <laughs> seven pages deep into the fine print <laughs> on a travel insurance contract when she spotted some curious text. Uh, she read this. Here's what she read. If you've read this far, then you're the one of the very few tin leg customers <laughs> to review all of their policy documentation. Read the text, revealing a secret contest, inviting her to claim a $10,000 reward. She was the first to reach out to them about the contest, the company said. 
23 hours after the event launched and after 73 policies spelling out the reward had been issued. Wow. So they knew 73 people hadn't read it. <laughs> the company calls the contest Pays to Read, an effort to reward those who read policy documents oh, from the beginning to the end. And she tells students in her life skills class to do the same because she's a teacher. Right. She said, I used to put a question like that midway through an exam. If you're reading this, skip the next question. That caught my eye and intrigued me to keep reading. She plans to use it to go to Scotland. She basically said, and the the company said, we understand most customers don't actually read contracts or documentation when buying something, but we know the importance of doing so because most people buy travel insurance and just assume they're covered. So they're trying to get people to do it. And I just found that fascinating. Literally seven pages into the fine print, they go, (laughs) hey, if you're still reading, call this number, text this, or, you know, go to this website. $10,000 $10,000 is yours, and, and nobody else did it. I, I have heard stories of professors, like, usually putting, like, at the very last question yep. uh, uh, of, like, some lengthy exam. If you made it this far, uh, just turn this page in. Uh, this isn't a real test or something like that. Like, and I, Which is always, like, I'm not someone who would read all the questions yep. first. I would just dive in. <laughs> maybe that's why. Maybe that's why that rubs me the wrong way. But I'm curious. Are you a fine print reader? I am completely not. <laughs> there is not a chance. It said that she got seven pages into the fine print. I would have gotten seven lines in a million. Oh, yeah, okay, agree. Especially the digital ones where you can just like scroll, 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 <laughs> except I'm not, I'm, not even, I'm not even glancing at the words. Don't you hate those ones that tell you you have to scroll to the bottom? You just go, do, 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 do. It's the word. Okay, can I uh, confess something to you then? I love it. Is this a safe place? So if we got a bunch of minutes here, just start confessing. I'm ready. Uh, I'm ready. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think that's a healthy uh, you can practice text for us in. to do. You can. Nope. Uh, I used to, years ago, I used to uh, intentionally hide things in our church bulletin just to see if people noticed stop like, like what like I, just like a little sentence like uh you know if 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 you're reading this uh go ahead and give a high five to the person next to you or just like little challenges or little yeah and and i would often like tell people like don't tell anybody else about this you know they like make it a little bit of a treasure hunt and you could tell who actually was reading it because it was often like a challenge to to like, live like it in out. the middle of your sermon would they like all of a sudden sometimes, high five somebody yeah, sometimes i found that really and, and it was amazing much like this story very few people caught it very few people were actually reading. St- I'm not a, an avid bulletin reader. I totally, I totally get it. But you and I, as pastors, both, yep. you know, we probably shared the same frustration of like an event that's coming up, and there was like an announcement and an email and a Facebook blast and something in the bulletin, and people still are like, "Hey, what time yeah. is that thing?" Oh at? no, that doesn't happen in my church ever. <laughs> sure. Well, just ours then. I are guess. Are you a fine print reader? Nope. 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 Probably to a fault. I think buying a home has elevated that for me a little bit. I'm a little more nervous about some of that stuff. Um, but no, I'm just not. I mean, I don't think either of us are necessarily details people yeah. necessarily. I've had to learn to get better at it, but I, I'll never be proficient, I think, in I that. I think I'm going to get it. Like my wife, had, something happened with our her phone Yeah, uh, where the screen got cracked. And uh, there's somebody who's probably going to be out there going, you're just dumb or <laughs> no, you're wrong. But like, I feel like I'm getting scammed, but I'm sure uh, it's in the fine print because we pay for this insurance through right, the phone company. Right, right, right. But apparently it required a different insurance to cover uh, what happened to her phone. So I'm like, why have I been paying for this insurance? What's the point of this? Right. I'm sure the, I'm sure the answer is in the fine print. Well, why sure don't you actually that. read it? Why, let's let's read it and revisit this story then and find out if you actually notice, are covered. Notice whose phone I said it was. That's true. <laughs> Touche. Touche. I love you, sweetie, if you're listening right okay, now. Okay, <laughs> so I don't, I don't want to get too meta on this one. But oh, I, this is where you're good. You're I, good at No, this. no, it's more of a question than a conclusion because I don't, I don't actually know where I want to go with this, but what 
what is the thing behind the thing? Because I don't think we're alone in this, like, just scroll past the f- I'm not interested in the fine print. Yep. Like, is that, at, you know, blown out at a, you know, at a macro level? Is that uh, an obsession with stimulus? Is that uh, a lack of time and patience? Is mm. that, like, what is the, like, the human thing? Or is it just, oh, it's just fine print. Stop reading into it, Ian. Like, I, I'm wondering what the impulse to glaze past or to skip past the details like I'm realizing, even just as a, as a fairly new dad, yep. man, some of the most beautiful moments of my day are the quote unquote fine print. It's yeah. these little moments oh, with my boy. Good. It's the little. It's not the birthday parties, not the the family vacation. All those those things are great, but I'm like, oh man, the stuff that like brings tears to my eyes now, the stuff that like gets me through the day is like, oh, this little interaction I had with my boy yeah. last night, and it was. I'll forget it in three days because it was that small. But like, I don't want to miss those moments, and I'm so inclined to just jump from like big thing to big thing yeah. that I sometimes maybe that is maybe that is the point. I do kind of miss the fine print sometimes. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think actual fine print. Why do we blow through it? Yeah. It's because you know I think we've conditioned ourselves that a like we all read in like 140 characters now. Oh, good point. <laughs> and so this that's is like you just have to scroll and scroll and scroll. And let's be honest, when we read it, I think they purposely write most of the fine print to be boring and a little inaccessible. So you're like, I, I don't even know what I'm reading. And none of it seems to really matter. Interesting. I'm bored. I, I think it speaks to uh, how um, our attention spans a little bit. Like, yeah, I can't right. give up another minute of my life reading this fine print, <laughs> which is just sounds ridiculous to say, but I think it's true, right? So like, we don't see just, the value in doing it. Yeah. What's the point? Why yeah. bother? We assume we're covered or assume there's, not, there's no surprises. Or it's never going to come to this or whatever. But I do mm. think that what you're saying about, you know, you took it to a much greater scale about the mundane things of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is a great point, man, because I do think my greatest joys are often found in the mundane things of life. Yeah, right, right. And like I've, did I tell you I'm going on vacation a couple of days? <laughs> you have mentioned so we're gonna it be a couple down of times. We're going to be down in Florida. And I think what I'm most excited about is we're not doing like Orlando or Disney or apparently I could have hung with Stephen Barr, though. But, <laughs> um, but what I'm most excited about is just like, having uninterrupted yes. time with my wife and children to go for a walk, to totally. go swimming, to laugh, and to just kind of breathe. Totally. It's why my family loves to drive on these trips. I love is that. because we just, like, we often don't get to be together. And I'm just excited for the mundane and the 85-degree weather. But yeah, right. The mundane <laughs> right. in the 85-degree weather right. uh, is great. And you're hitting that age, too, man. Life's just going to get faster and faster yes. and faster yep. as your kids get older. And, and I... I want to look back on my life after my kids are gone, not gone, but you know, they're moved out or right, whatever. I want to be right. able to go back and be like, oh, I just remember what it was like to have family dinner yeah, or like totally. when we hung out on the couch and watched TV at night or when we did this. Um, yeah. We don't want to miss those things. Yeah. Can I, can I go like full on Baptist preacher right now then? <laughs> yes, you can. I, I have something stewing that I, I don't know how this is going to come out, but I wonder like, you know, this, this story of a woman winning $10,000 for reading the fine print. Like I'm picturing, okay, so cue the underscore. Yeah, right? I was trying to think, what can I hum? Here, 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 here comes the fog. Uh, what if I told you that there's a reward even greater than $10,000 for being present in the little things by reading the fine print, paying, paying attention to the mundane? Those are the things worth hitting pause on our crazy lives to be present in the here and now, however mundane or yes. common it may seem. Okay, I got to be honest. Like, we're getting good at this radio and pastor thing. If you just took a story about insurance fine print and you went there, I am proud of you. 
I am. I, I lay down before you. That was wonderful. Oh, that's a little fun. No, no need. No need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no need, my friend. That's all good. Pay attention. Great, Pay attention to the little things. That's that was worth good it. stuff. Well, coming up next, we like to land the plane every day just by sharing some insanity that we found online. And as always, the internet never disappoints. Never. And so that's uh, coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. A fun fact that those were actually our voices. (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) Be awesome if it was. Yeah, it really would be. No, it wouldn't. No. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can go to 1160hope.com. We are podcasted. You can text us now. The number is 68683. And then in your message, put the letter CG for Common Good and then your comment. And uh, if you've been listening for any length of time, you know that we like to end the show with a little bit or a lot of bit of uh, insanity in the Internet Never disappoints. And again, just a disclaimer, our producers have chosen these yes, stories. We've not actually read them, so we're going to read them sight unseen. And uh, I'm nervous because Keith chose them and then is not here today. Yeah, he's not here right so now, which that feels is like super they concerning. Extra. And super by the way, concerning. I only say land the plane and you make fun of me, but you just were describing what we're doing. And with your hand, you landed a plane. Yeah, I'm, trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to pay homage, Brian. I'm not, I want you to feel uh, honored in this. Uh, all right, okay. up first. All right, kick us off. England. Oh, boy. Archaeologists are bitter about Cadbury. I mean, sure. Cadbury has pulled an advertising campaign that archaeologists say encourage children to dig for treasure illegally. Naming archaeological sites around the UK and Ireland where jewels, gold, and silver have been found, the Treasure Island ads encourage kids to grab your metal detector and go hunting for Roman riches because there could have been some that was overlooked and treasures fair game, reports The Guardian. Unfortunately, Cadbury's PR campaign potentially puts people at odds with the law. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Response, strict rules protect England's archaeological heritage, including laws governing metal detec- detection. And so the archaeologists are mad. Oh, boy. That belongs in a museum. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's like the most English story we've ever done, by yep. the way. All right, Illinois, here we go. Choking woman saved by doctor filling in as busboy at restaurant. That works well. <laughs> I can't wait to get into this. All right. It was a very lucky St. Patrick's Day. I see what you did there. For a woman <laughs> in need of a life-saving assist at a Winneka restaurant over the weekend, a last-minute staffing issue left the Trifecta Grill in need of a busboy to fill in during the busy holiday season. Waitress Alina Bange had an idea. Uh, she would call her dad, who had recently retired, just because he's had... Uh, the time in his hands, he's been around the house and, you know, not doing a whole lot. Nope. Her dad is Dr. Bill Benge. Benge? Am I saying that right? I think so. Dr. Bill Benge, a retired Harvard-trained cardiologist who jokes that he traded his white coat for a white apron. I said, uh, this is not funny, but what happens if there's some medical event and he just happens to be there on this night and we all kind of laughing in jest about it? Uh, but just after he arrived on Saturday... The punchline became a lifeline. Oh, gosh, so many puns. The punchline <laughs> became a lifeline when an elderly customer began choking on her meal. He wasn't here uh, He wasn't here for more than five minutes with his apron, and a lady had stopped breathing from choking. So instead of clearing tables, Dr. Ben stepped in to clear a blocked air passage. Is there a doctor in the house? I'm a doctor. 
Yep, obviously. So good. <laughs> That's funny. Florida. Obviously. Did I mention I'm going there later this week? Yeah, you meant a couple times. Or maybe, yeah. Okay, okay sure. Florida man accused of, you're kind of tired of it now. <laughs> Florida man it. accused of throwing pancake batter faces battery charge. A 45-year-old Florida man is accused of throwing a bowl of pancake batter at a woman who was making dinner. An arrest warrant says Dwayne Zimmerman was drunk, of course, on Friday night <laughs> when he went onto the porch of a home where the woman was making pancakes. The woman told deputies that Zimmerman insulted her and then threw a cooking pan before picking up the bowl of batter and tossing it at her. The bowl missed the woman, but was thrown with enough force to break it. He was arrested on felony battery charges. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Is, have, have these gotten weirder yeah. since when we you started? Do. I kind of <laughs> pancake batter battery charge. Ah, that might have been a pun. Okay, Tennessee fugitive masquerades as Harvard-educated psychiatrist gave out pills. Oh, jeez! A Nashville area con man who fled Tennessee on the eve of trial uh, two years ago hid in plain sight under at least three fake identities, including as a Harvard-educated psych, uh, psychiatric psychiatric. I think it's a trist. Yeah, I think that's I think it's a typo. Okay. Who conducted therapy sessions and handed out pills according to federal authorities. Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for ninety minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground barring injuries four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station. Residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, a dog house in that area. It was a long one. Great movie, though. Great movie. The Fugitive. By the way, you sell me out all the time. I've been reading on these. That word was psychiatric, by the way. Psychiatric, right Man robbed of pants. This is the last one. Missouri man robbed of pants at gunpoint. A robbery victim had his pants stolen just before noon Sunday when he was outside his friend's house. The victim told police he was outside his friend's house when a man walked up, pulled out a handgun, and stole his pants. Oh, my word. That's unfortunate. I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, so that's good. a good day, man. man never a dull moment. Hey, thanks for throwing me under the bus back there. You, I, you've done it to me. So I, I don't, if, you remember me, if you remember me throwing him under the bus one time, why don't you email us? Email <laughs> us, find us on Facebook. Text us at 68683 with the letter CG and then your comment. <laughs> yeah, this has been fun as always. Join yes. us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.